Luke 11, beginning in verse 24, it says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. As he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. Whenever your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If, then, your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Responding. How do you respond appropriately? Well, this is something we teach our children from an early age. No matter what they're given at Christmas or their birthdays, we say, well, make sure you say thank you. When someone enters a room, we tell them you need to acknowledge their presence. We tell them when an adult talks to you, you need to look at them at the, in the eye and then give a clear response to them. When someone tells you a story, you need to look at them and not look bored and rolled your eyes and you're almost done. We have to learn what is the appropriate way to respond. And though we're instructed, sometimes we find it very hard. You know, for a long time, and I wouldn't be surprised if it still happens, if I was in a very awkward or very serious situation, I would start laughing. I would be telling myself, this is not the right time to laugh. But I was so nervous, I, I didn't know how to handle it, that I would just laugh. And I'm thinking, this is really inappropriate. But I couldn't handle it. You know, we tell our children, don't point, don't stare. And yet they still do it. One of my friends took his family on the ferry to Staten Island in New York. And on the ferry were mostly business professionals. Expensive suits, ties, and attire. And everyone looked very professional except one man who had on a very nice suit and yet he had short, green, spiked hair. And my friend's three-year-old daughter looks up and goes, <laughs> that man has green hair. And everyone on the ferry heard it. And with all of the crowd, he couldn't move. You tell your children, don't say stuff like that, but they don't learn. And we have to teach them how to respond. You know, many of the ways we respond are culturally ingrained. How do you respond at a funeral? Well, in our culture, funerals tend to be quieter. We cry, but we kind of have this idea, you kind of need to keep it quiet. Other cultures, they 
wail loudly. They'll sometimes even hire mourners to come in and wail so the right environment can be created. Now, there are different avenues of life where we respond differently, but there's one relationship in which we must all respond the same, and that is to God himself. Now, that's not to say that every single aspect of our life is cookie-cutter, or not that there's Christian liberty, that we can act differently in different ways, but in our main response to Jesus, he's going to show us this morning that we must totally, we must fully, unreservedly repent of sins and follow him. And yet, Jesus is going to confront this morning very different responses to him. And so Jesus is going to give warnings of the wrong response. He's going to give blessings of the right response. He's going to rebuke people, and he's going to urge them to respond appropriately. But first, in verses 24 through 26, we get this illustration that's a warning, because Jesus tells of this unclean spirit that comes out of a man. Well, does it come out because of an exorcism? Well, that's what happened right before this. Jesus cast out a demon. Or was this from personal reformation? Well, we're not told. But whatever the case, the spirit leaves. And then after a while, he comes back because the man, the home, is now clean and orderly. At least from this verse, you might say that cleanliness is not always next to godliness, but that's a side conversation. But nonetheless, when the spirit comes back, he finds that this place is clean and he brings other spirits, and they overtake the man. And then they dwell there, and it's worse for the man than if he had never been partially cleaned in the first place. Well, that story is really quite simple, though maybe a little outside of our normal experience. But what are we supposed to take from it? Is Jesus only talking to people who have had demons cast out of them? You know, if so, that would be very few people in the world. No, I think as we look at the whole context of everything, Jesus is giving an illustration about what our response to him should look like. And he uses this illustration of exorcism to give a bigger picture that he's going to show in various ways in this passage. And that is, if you have an experience with God, or you hear his word, or you are brought to conviction, and you go so far, but you stop, that's actually more dangerous than if you'd ever, if you'd never begun in the first place. The unfinished spiritual work is more dangerous than nothing at all. You know, with this specific illustration, this person is freed of evil, but he then does not fill it with good in its place. You know, there's an empty dwelling. That's what he's talking about. Instead, our lives must remove sin, but also fill it with godliness. In Peter, Second Peter, he's writing about false teachers, and then he's warning them. And he says in Second Peter 17, chapter 2, 17 through 22, says, "For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness." Then after having known it, to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. Jesus says something similar in John 5. He heals a lame man, and then he says to him, Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. This is the idea over and over that if you've begun down the path of following Christ, but then you stop. 
and you're content where you are, and you really don't seek to fill your life with godliness, that this is very dangerous. In fact, you might be worse off than if you'd never even begun. As I was studying this, it kind of struck me. We don't talk this way very much in our churches. In fact, we kind of say the exact opposite of what Jesus is saying here. I remember being in college and being taught that right after conversion, the most important thing to share with someone is assurance of salvation. If you've done this, you can know for sure that you are saved and eternally secure. And we should rejoice in that. However, the implication is almost that it doesn't matter what you do from here on out. Obedience is not that important. It'll be bring you more joy, might bring more blessing, but really it's not that essential. But Jesus, though, is saying that to have had a spiritual experience or cleansing of some type, but to stop and be comfortable with that will lead to spiritual destruction. Now our minds immediately go to, well, what about assurance of salvation, eternal security? And there are clear passages that teach that. John 10, 27-28. Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. If salvation is always a gift of God that we did nothing to earn. And since I did nothing to earn it, there's nothing I can do to lose it. Though some people will say, I can't even snatch myself out of Jesus' hand. Our confidence always has been, and always should be, that we're saved because of Jesus. What he did for, for us, not what we do for him. However, while that's true, there's this thread of teaching throughout the Bible, by Jesus here and others, that some people have tasted of heavenly things, and they have appeared to enjoyed them, and then they stop. And what should we think of that? Did they lose their salvation? Well, again, some will quickly say, no, no, can't be snatched from the Father's hand. And yet that doesn't actually answer what these verses are saying. I would argue that the Bible teaches, yes, once we are saved, we're always saved, but that is if we were saved in the first place. Because it is a reality that the New Testament and the Old Testament bear witness to that you can look like you're saved. You can give a credible profession and a life for even years. But if you wander away, you should have no confidence of your salvation. There should be fruit in your life. That's what Jesus, what Second Peter are talking about. And I chose my words carefully there. I'm not saying that we can look out and go, well, pfft, they're not saved. I'm saying that person should not have confidence of their salvation. Could it be that they are David-like, in rebellion, in adultery, in murder? Yes. But in that moment, the prophet Nathan didn't go, but David, I just want to let you know, you're still saved. You're eternally secure. No, he confronted him with his sin. Our confidence is always in Christ, but there should be fruit that comes from that. There should be evidence of a continual love is that going to be perfect? Definitely not. Is it always going to be done joyfully? No. Yet, if we're not continually repenting and coming back to Christ, we should have concerns. Have I started the spiritual walk but not finished? Did I really ever begin it in the first place? 
Now, this is not just abstract theology. As I already noted, some people in their desire, a good desire to help people know, look, you can have confidence. You don't need to be worried till the day of your death. Have I done enough good or bad so I can really know if I'm saved? Christ saves us. We're secure. But in their desire to uphold that, they have unwittingly taught, so your life just really doesn't matter. Obedience, no big deal. And yet, we must persevere. You know, I have one friend who regrettably said that he worked and worked spiritually with his children until they were baptized, and then he kind of mentally checked out. Oh, they're good. He was regretting, almost in tears, how he had done that. He not pushed them on. As well, many Christians often err in thinking, well, I'm, I don't do these lists of sins. I've professed faith. I don't do these bad things. Except Christ wants us to respond more than that. The goal is not merely to remove sin. That's the clean house that Jesus is talking about. The house needs to not only be clean, it needs to be refilled. It needs to be filled up with good things, with holiness. And this is really all over the Bible. One example is Colossians 3. In verses 5 and following it says, Put off, and it gives all these things we should take out of our life. And then, right after verse 12 it says, And Put on all these things that should be put in the Christian's life. Not only oh, I don't steal, I don't cuss, I don't watch certain movies, but I also love my neighbor. I also seek to do good. I also, and there's a fruit of righteousness flowing out of our life. Robert Stein says it well. He says, the Christian must fill the void created by the expulsion of the demonic, worldly, or immorality that's in our life, lest these evils be replaced by hypocrisy, self-righteousness, pride, or relapse, which would be worse still. So we have to ask ourselves, have we merely done a religious deed, or am I following Christ? Am I merely avoiding a bunch of sins, or am I seeking to actively love God? And Jesus is warning them and any disciple after. And then after that, though, he gives a blessing. Because there's blessings to following him. It's not just avoiding curses. So verses 27 and 28, and this all begins because a woman shouts out, Blessed is the woman who bore you. And that is very true. Mary is very blessed. Your parents are very proud of their children. When they see them accomplish great things, when they see them do wonderful things, it brings joy to their heart. And when Elizabeth came to Mary, she declared in the... Being by being filled with the Spirit, blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. So it's true, Mary is and was blessed to know and have Jesus as her son. But notice what Jesus says in verse 28. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. So he's not denying the blessing that it was for Mary to be his mother, but rather he's saying those who hear God's word and keep it are more blessed. Now notice they hear it and keep it. Not just they hear it and memorize it, or hear it and hang it on the walls of their house, or hear it and put it on their shirts. Hear it and keep it, meaning obey it, follow it. You know, obedience, Jesus is saying, matters. It brings blessing. 
blessing even more than being the mother of Jesus. To take a quick rabbit trail, you know, many of you may have grown up in a tradition that said we should pray to Mary or we should honor her. Well, again, she is blessed. But Mary was a sinner just like us. And we should never ever pray to her. We can be even more blessed than her. Jesus could not have been clear here that though Mary had a very blessed role, she's of no greater significance than any other person. Back on the main trail, though, Christians respond to this in kind of two extremes. One extreme is legalism. It's the idea, well, if God's going to give me good things, then I have to obey. I have to do all this. I kind of need to force God's hand, get him to cry, uncle. And what that is implying, what legalism is implicitly saying is, God, you're really not good. I have to force you to give me good things by doing all this good for you. The other extreme, got to prepare your brain for this one, is antinomianism. The big word, just split it up. Anti means no. Nomianism comes from no loss, law. So no law. So rather than saying, you've got to do all this for God to bless you, it says, there's really no laws for the Christian. Once you're saved, you can live however you want. It doesn't matter at all. We're saved by Christ alone. Which that's true, but as James says, the faith that's alone always has works. And so this, though, is giving this idea that, look, all you have to do is give this mental assent. You're a sinner. Jesus died for you, and you're good. And yet that's actually the flip side of the era of legalism because think about what it is implicitly saying. It's saying, look, all those things God told us to do, you don't, they're actually really not that good. You don't want to obey those things. And both legalism and antinomianism, or those who say there's no law for Christians, are both undercutting God's goodness. Instead, Jesus is showing us God gave us laws because he loves us. Because they're good for us. It's a blessing to us to obey. And the fruit of us trusting him is that we do that. It's like a boss who says to you, hey, I want you to take some vacation. He's not saying that to be rude. He's trying to bless you. Or when you're learning how to drive, the driving instructor saying, no, you can't drive wherever you want. You have to drive on the right side of the road. Well, you could scream and say, you intolerant jerk. I want to drive on the left side. Who are you to stop my freedom? Well, your freedom and joy is going to end as soon as you get on the road because you're going to go smacking into someone else. He's telling you these rules so you can enjoy your driving, so that you can have the good experience. And Jesus is saying, look, if you follow the rules I gave you, it will be a blessing to you. You'll be blessed even more than Mary. Really, this is contrasting what he just said before. Don't start on the spiritual journey and then go, eh, I'm not really going to continue. I'm not really going to do what God says. And so again, we have to ask ourselves some tough questions. Are you enjoying the blessings of God by obeying Him? Or do you really think that His rules are quite burdensome? Yeah, God's good for making sure my family stays healthy, my account's always increasing, but I'm not going to obey everything he says. Come on, that's like a little over the top. If so, Jesus is warning that we're on dangerous ground. He's saying, look, there's a blessing to following me, to having a full response. 
And yet Jesus is looking at some people who are giving externally the signs of following him, but they're not. So in verses 29 through 32, he rebukes them. Beginning in verse 29, when the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. Why does he say that? Well, he says it because they're only coming out to seek signs from him. You imagine what these people are doing. Consider what it is. They're looking the God of the universe in the face and saying, I know you just cast out a demon, but you need to do more for me. You haven't done enough for me. How much more evil could we be? They don't want to submit to what he's revealed to them. They want him to do their bidding. And yet, does it ever strike you how odd Jesus is? I mean, consider what came right before him calling them evil. When the crowds were increasing. You know, if any of Jesus' disciples were disciple growth experts, they'd be face-palming. Oh, Jesus. You know, like, we're just kind of getting the, we're getting the momentum. We're getting the energy. The people are coming. So, like, can you save the evil generation speech for us, the core disciples? You, you, you have to increase the discipleship out large. And then when we get on the boat, then you go into problem of sin and all of that stuff. Jesus, you've got to grow the crowds. And yet Jesus says, no. I'm not concerned about visible results immediately. I'm concerned about faithfulness to God's message. And we too, we should be. Just as Jesus shows in other places, concern for people. He's not trying to drive them away. We should be concerned. We should want to see people come to faith who do not now know him. You know, whether we're 50 or 500, there's never a point where we should go, oh, we're comfortable here. We actually don't really want more people. We like it the way it is. You know, God has brought us together not only to get those around us who we like, but also to reach out to those who maybe we don't like because they need the Savior. And yet, in our desire to reach out, like Jesus, we can't compromise the message to kind of massage the numbers. Well, after calling them evil, Jesus declares that he's not going to give them any more signs except the sign of Jonah. This is the third time in Luke we've come across Jesus saying something like this, of, I'm not going to do any more signs. And his point has never been that he won't do more miracles. In fact, in chapter 13, he'll cast out a demon. Chapter 14, he'll heal a man. Chapter 17, he'll cleanse ten lepers. Chapter 18, he'll heal a blind man. Neither is his point that y'all just need to have faith. As though faith is what skeptics of Christianity often say. Faith is believing in something without any evidence. The Bible never calls someone to that type of faith. The Bible always describes faith as a rational response to the evidence in front of us. Each time Jesus says he won't do more signs, it's because he's saying, I'm not going to be, to steal an idea, your monkey boy. You can't come in and put the quarter in and I'll put on my little hat and do the little song and dance on the machine. I'm not here to do your bidding. I've done plenty of signs. The reports of me have gone throughout the countryside. We could look back at the verses before this when Jesus cast out a demon and no one said, well, that didn't really happen. They all knew it happened. 
And so he says he's not going to do them, but they will be given one more sign, the sign of Jonah. What's the sign of Jonah? Well, you look at the parallel account in Matthew 12, 40, it continues, it says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, if you're not familiar with the Bible, you might be thinking, what in the world was that about? Well, most of you are familiar with this story. Jonah, the prophet in the Old Testament, was called to preach the good news that they could repent and come back to their Creator. But Jonah fled in the opposite direction. He took a ship thinking he could flee from God. However, no one can escape God, so God sent the violent storm. And Jonah again didn't want to submit to God. So he basically asked for the sailors to kill him. Throw me in the ocean. I still don't want to obey God, thinking he would be delivered. And yet God won't let him escape, so he swallows him and keeps him safe in the belly of the fish. And there Jonah repents and commits to go to Nineveh. And then he spit up on the land and he goes and preaches to the city. Well, Jesus uses this image of Jonah being three days, three nights in the belly of the fish and then coming up to say like he, Jesus, will spend three days in the earth and will come forth in his resurrection. Thus, the sign that Jesus will give is his future resurrection. That's what he's saying. And yet, even that will not be enough. Because what will the religious leaders do? They'll pay off the guards. They'll say, we'll tell your soul, your officers that you fell asleep and the disciples came and stole Jesus' body. And this is really showing why Jesus isn't doing more signs. Because he can die and rise from the dead and they still go, eh, we don't believe. Jesus could have done a hundred more signs that day and after that, they would say, well, can you do 101? There would never be enough. Jesus thus declares that they stand condemned for two different Gentiles responded to much lesser revelation. First, he says, the Queen of Sheba here referred to the Queen of the South. She is going to rise up and condemn them. Keith read this story earlier. She had heard of Solomon's wisdom, and so she came from afar. And then she said, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. And behold, the half of it was not told to me. Your wisdom and prosperity surpassed the report that I heard. And so at the day of judgment, she's going to come up and say, look, I came from a, around the earth to come to a mere man who had wisdom. You were face to face with the God of the universe, who had greater wisdom, who did miracles in front of you, and you didn't repent? How could you not repent? She's going to condemn them. They're culpable for their unbelief. Not only that, but the men of Nineveh, verse 32, are going to rise up, because they responded to the proclamation and sign of Jonah. Now, it's a little unclear what Jonah told them. In Jonah 3, 4, it says that he went through the town saying, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Was that his sermon? Did he just go through the town saying, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown? And from that short little message, they repented? Well, if so, if they repented from that pathetic message, how much more should they be repenting from the words of Jesus that astounded them? Now, maybe that was just a synopsis. And Jonah 
said more and he explained and he even said, look, you can't run from God. Let me tell you, because I tried and I tried to flee from here and this great fish came and swallowed me and it spit me out on the dry land. Did y'all wonder how I got here from the beach? Yeah, that was weird. This fish spit me out. And I'm telling you, you can't run from God. One day you'll be face to face before Him. And you have to give an account for everything you've done. And yet there's mercy because God's going to send His Messiah who will deliver us all if we repent and turn. And they repented. Well, if that's the case, the men of Nineveh will say, well, you saw the one who came. That was the one that Jonah told us about. And he didn't just tell us he came up out of a fish. He came back after he died and rose again. So either way, guys, y'all are culpable. Won't you repent? Now, put yourself in the hearer's, we might say sandals for a second. These are Gentiles who are going to come and condemn them. These are Jewish religious leaders who Jesus is saying, look, Gentiles are going to come and say, you were unrighteous. You are an evil generation. They would have already been insulted by Jesus calling them evil, but now Gentiles condemning them? This is scandalous. And yet Jesus is showing them that it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're offended by his words. What matters is, do you respond to the revelation that he's given to you? And whether they find it offensive or not, he's letting them know you can still repent. There's still hope. There's still signs that you can respond to. And yet if those people were culpable due to their greater revelation, how much more are we? If you had a thousand people in that crowd, who knows how many? A thousand, maybe ten of them had a book in their house, maybe. We have books galore. We can look up the Bible digitally any second we want. And right next to it, commentaries, great sermons, podcasts, great Christian books. How much more will the men of even that generation arise up and say, How did you not respond? How did you have all of this wealth of information and do nothing? And so, Jesus is saying, look, this is an urgent request. And so Jesus urges them to respond appropriately. And that's the last section, verses 33 through 36. And to explain this, Jesus uses this illustration of lights and lamps. And as he goes through, he mixes it up a little bit so it can get confusing. But I found it helpful as I was studying some phrases, I guess for lack of a better word, that John MacArthur used. First, in verse 33, there's the possibility of sight. Verse 34, the problem of sight. Verse 35, the pretense of sight. And verse 36, the preciousness. Again, looking at verse 33, it's the possibility of sight because Jesus says, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. This is kind of a everyday common illustration. Hey, you go in your room, you light the lamp. You didn't light it to then cover it right back up. You didn't light it to go downstairs where no one can see it. You lit the lamp so that everyone could see it. And the point here is that Jesus is the lamp. He came and he's saying, look, I didn't come to be the lie of the world and then keep everything secret. 
I've already revealed myself. I am my revealing myself. The light is here for everyone to see. In other words, the problem with your response isn't that you don't have enough light. The light is there. There's no secret. You have all the information you need. This is not some obscure mystery. You don't need to go hunting off to some mountain. I'm right here. The light is visible for all to see. Well, that leads to the second statement, verse 34, and that's the problem of sight. Because Jesus says, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your whole body is full of darkness. Now Jesus here switches the metaphor because now he's saying our eyes are basically a window into our soul. Now if we had windows, we do have windows, and if we put black on them, no light would come in. It's keeping the light out. But if they were clean and clear, light would come pouring in. And Jesus is saying they don't see because inside is dark. Their windows are black. They don't want to let the light in. They can't let the light in. Again, the issue is not the light. The light is clear. It's that the person's sight is obscured. And Jesus is saying the Jews aren't responding because they're full of darkness. But there's a problem, and that leads to verse 35. They have the pretense of sight. You know, pretense is a deception. It's a self-deception here because he says, therefore be careful lest the light in you be darkness. They're going around saying, we see. We're the religious leaders. We know what's going on. And yet Jesus is saying, no, you don't see. You're proclaiming to be in the light and you're not. You know, this is really mimicking the words of Paul in Romans 1, 21 and 22. He says, for although they knew God, well, the Jews, they know God on one level. They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Here, these religious leaders have before him the very thing that all of their scriptures are about. And they claim to be wise in the understanding of the scriptures. And yet they can't see that right in front of them is what they're proclaiming to know. Proclaiming to be wise, they have become fools. And what they could do is admit, we aren't in the light. We're full of darkness. And yet, verse 36, they can have sight, the preciousness of sight in verse 36. For Jesus says, if then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Well, how are they going to get this light in them? Well, this really goes back to verse 33, because Jesus is the light. And Jesus says, if they will let the light in them, then they will reflect it like the moon reflects the sun. That they won't walk in darkness, but they'll walk in his marvelous light. This is basically saying, look, what you have done is not enough. You need something to come in you. You know, Jesus over and over in this is calling them to respond appropriately. Don't just respond with starting down the spiritual walk and then stopping. Respond where you'll be blessed by hearing the word and keeping it. And we have responders in our society. First responders. What do they do? They go to a certain building and then when they're given an alarm, 
they respond. Now imagine some of the responders here in our church, the firemen. The alarm goes off and they notice and they go, ah, that thing's going off. Okay. Well, that's not the right response. You don't just hear it and go, oh, well, that's interesting. Well, imagine they hear it and then they go out in the hallway and go, what's going on? Oh, well, there's a plane coming in. There might be a crash. Oh, really? Okay. Well, just hearing of Jesus' message and going, going, what's this about? Okay, that, that's interesting. That's not enough. Well, imagine they hear the alarm and they put their gear on and they go jump on the truck and they get there to the scene and the plane does wreck and then they just stand there and watch. Well, we actually wanted you to respond to come and help all the way till the fire's out. Well, many people, they hear the message of Christ. They put on the Christian attire. They get on the truck, so to speak, and they go, and then they stop. I'm just going to sit and watch. I'm here in church now. Just, I'm good. I'm not really going to live this out in my life. That's not enough response. You need to hear the message. Put on the gear, so to speak. Get on the truck, and then until the day is done, the hour is done, when Christ calls you home, do what he's called you to do. And so Jesus, over and over, is Asking us, how have we responded? Have we responded appropriately? It's not just enough to morally transform your life. You know, anyone can put on some good morals, be a kind person, give money to charity. Jesus is saying, look, you need me to enter in. You need to be born again. And then when you have, live that out. Respond a life of obedience and trust. That is the life, he says, that will be blessed, blessed even more than being his own mother. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you give us hearts that respond, not just once in a profession of faith, but each day. Lord, even now in all of us, there's competing desires. Lord, may the battle in our hearts, may we overcome by your Son that the desire for sin would be mortified, and that the desire for holiness would be resurrected, that we would long to live for you. Lord, we thank you that it is not our effort, it's completely what your Son has done for us. So we again cling to him. He is our hope and confidence. It's in his name we pray. Amen.